Many of you will know that some of the phrases and stories that come out of the Bible have become so familiar that they have reached out into a larger uh, culture, so that even people who don't know the Bible very well and may not call themselves Christians will use them. So if you ever hear the term, the Good Samaritan, uh, you'll know, of course, the Bible story, but you'll also know that it's often used for just a stranger who helps somebody else. Or, uh, as we have today, you might say, that guy's a real doubting Thomas. Well, that comes from our story today as well. Thomas has become a byword, so that whenever you mention Thomas, you can't help but put doubting in front of it, as if Thomas stands in for everybody who disbelieves the truth. I'd like to suggest to you that doubting Thomas deserves a little bit better credit than we give to him. Because I think the story today tells us not just the story of a person who's wrong, it actually gives us an example of what we are to see in our own lives as modern-day Christians. We live many, many uh, hundreds of years uh, after the fact of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. But as we look to Thomas, I believe that we are given reason to identify with him. We're given reason for hope through looking at the story about Thomas, and we're also given some challenge. I'd like to speak to you today about those things, about what this story illuminates about us, disciples at second hand, who have not had the gift and the opportunity of seeing Jesus face to face in the way that the disciples did. Now, why do I say that Thomas is an example to us and somebody we should be able to identify with? I'd like to suggest that one of the most powerful reasons we should identify with Thomas is because Thomas is the first of the disciples who is asked to believe in the resurrection of Jesus without having seen it. Thomas is not there when Jesus appears. The disciples tell him that Jesus is risen, and he has a hard time believing it. If you remember back to last week, you will have heard John John chapter 20, the first half of that chapter was read out. We hear the second half of that chapter today. But you notice where belief comes from in each of those situations where people come to believe. We find that when James and John are told that the, the, uh, the tomb is empty, they run, they don't believe it necessarily, they run and they don't believe until they go in and actually see the linens wrapping there, and then we're told they believe, even though they didn't fully understand. Mary Magdalene, we hear, is weeping outside the tomb and thinks she hears a gardener speaking to her who asks, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken away my Lord. She still thinks uh, that he has just disappeared. Some grave robber has come. Until he calls out her name, she turns and she sees Jesus. Then she believes and goes off to tell the other disciples. Then later that same day, although we read it the next week, the beginning of uh, our reading today from John chapter 20, uh, verse 19, tells us that it's still Easter Sunday, but the disciples have gathered together in an upper room. They're still scared and Jesus appears to them. And we're told that Jesus shows himself to them. Initially, they're quite scared, but this is what happens. They were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said, Peace with you, be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They only rejoice and really believe when they see Jesus. So when Thomas comes after the fact, and he's told all these things, he does what I think most of us do. He has a hard time believing it, because all he's got to go on is the testimony of other disciples. And he has a hard time with it. Of course, eventually Jesus does show himself a week later to Thomas, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But I wanted to stress that fact, that he is challenged to believe having not seen. And why we look at this man as an example to us is because we find that same challenge. We've not seen Jesus face to face in the way that they did. And that makes it sometimes pretty hard to believe. 
you ever found yourself maybe, uh, you know, going along with life and life seems to be fine, you know, you're living your best life and following Oprah's advice and everything is great, right? And then somebody metaphorically throws you on a cross and starts pounding the nails in. You got a great job and you're excited about life and then you get pink slip. Why? Well, the, the company's downsizing. You've been doing a great job and whoop, the rug is pulled out from under you. Or maybe you got a relationship, it's going really well, and then they say, you know what, um, I think we need a little space. And you think, oh, what? I thought everything was great, I was trusting in you. Or even more sadly, of course, what do we all know? We know uh, whether it's, it's, it's affected us really closely because of a close friend or family member or somebody in our extended family, but I will bet that every one of us has been touched by the death of a loved one. Just this week, I, I was called yesterday to do a funeral this week, and so... I'll be challenged once again as I, as I preach to hopefully bring some hope to people at a funeral. And, and I know very well that their loved one is there in the casket. You know, even when you love Jesus and you follow Jesus for a long time, it is really hard sometimes to really believe the promises he makes to us. And I can tell you that in the midst of those times where those promises are hard to believe, as a person who follows Jesus, there's a big temptation I have. That temptation is to ignore the doubts I have and kind of stick them in some hidden room in my heart. The problem is when you do that and you sort of stick them into this hidden room and you do nothing with it is that they don't stay in that little room. They start to grow and sneak their way out. We are tempted sometimes as well within churches. There are churches uh, who refuse to allow people to voice any doubt. Sometimes we won't tell it to ourselves. But look at this passage where Thomas is doubting. I can't help but think that that is not only meant to help us understand that, yes, it's understandable to have doubts, it's also to help us understand the best way to deal with doubts is not to hide them, but to come back to our Savior and say, honestly, I'm having doubts, and find that when we have doubts, his answer to us is gracious and loving and helpful. You know, Thomas, you might think Jesus would be pretty cheesed off that he's not believing, right? Thomas, you remember, as a disciple, walked with Jesus and saw six or 5,000 people fed in John chapter 6. Thomas was right there when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. I mean, that's pretty powerful. And Thomas is still having a hard time believing. I can imagine after even his disciples, his closest friends, said, we just saw Jesus. He's still having a hard time with it. And you'd think Jesus is going to come and say, man, Thomas, you really, really dropped the ball on this one, dude. Yet, what does he say? Thomas refuses to believe, but we see in verse 26, a week later, Jesus' disciples were again in the house. Thomas was with them, and all the doors were shut. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. You know the first words Jesus says, knowing Thomas has denied belief? It's peace be with you. Not cursed Thomas, but peace. Then what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, Thomas, you ingrate, I'm not going to show you any evidence. Instead, he says, look, I'm going to give you what you need. You said you needed to see me, now you can see me. Thomas, by voicing his doubts, actually is inviting Jesus to show him what he needs in order to believe. And Jesus, far from pushing him away, we consider Thomas part of the group of apostles and a great saint, and we celebrate his saint day when the calendar comes up. In fact, today he's the patron saint of India because later on uh, Christians came to believe that Thomas was the first to bring the gospel there. My next door neighbor who's from India and is a Christian uh, told me that he's the patron saint of their church there, a very ancient church. When we have doubts, don't run away from them. Remember this guy Thomas who had doubts even though he had many reasons to believe. 
Remember, he brought them to the Lord. He voiced them honestly, and the Lord answered them. One of the greatest things you can do as a Christian when you're finding yourself tempted by doubts because you worry about miracles, tempted by doubts because you don't feel God loves you, tempted by doubts because you wonder whether God has the power to do something you really need him to do. Why not have the courage, instead of burying this, have the courage to say, God, I'm really struggling here, and I need some sign to know that you are who you say you are, that you do love me, that you have the power to do the things you need to do. Don't run away from God when you're feeling doubts, but instead run to him and say, God, I need something from you, and I need to see it. Because God wants to answer that and provide you what you need in order for you to believe. So there's the first thing. That is why we look to Thomas as an example and a sign of hope. But here's another thing, too, that I find really interesting about this. Jesus, when Thomas uh, speaks, um, it, it's interesting what Thomas's words are when he sees Jesus. Because if you look through the Gospel of chapter 20, what you'll find is an interesting progression here. It's an interesting progression because when first Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb, she doesn't know what happens, right? Then... The uh, disciples, James and John, or not James and John, Peter and, and John come to the, to, the, to the tomb and they find it empty and they start to believe. So they got this little bit of belief, right? Then Mary Magdalene sees Jesus and the first thing she does when she sees Jesus and recognizes his voice is she goes one step higher. I don't just believe you risen from the dead. She says, you're the teacher. Then what does she do? After Jesus instructs her, go and tell my brothers about what you've seen, then she goes and says, I've seen the Lord. So she goes one step higher. I don't just call him teacher, I call him the Lord. What do we find today in the gospel reading as we get to the end of, of chapter 20? The disciples see Jesus and they excitedly tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord. So they go off and they tell the other disciple. But what does Thomas do? After all the doubting, he goes one step further. He says, my Lord and my God. He not only recognizes Jesus as teacher, not only just as the Messiah, who's the human who has come uh, to, to lead people out of slavery, he also recognizes Jesus as the divine son of God. But here's something even more interesting. We get to the end. Thomas says this wonderful declaration. What a great thing that Thomas says. But Jesus says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Jesus says something interesting. He says it's almost as if those who have a harder time seeing Jesus directly might actually have a greater insight into who Jesus really is. Thomas is the one most distant in this story, yet he has the greatest insight about Jesus. And Jesus says, you see Thomas doing this? You ain't seen nothing yet because the people who never have seen me are the ones who will be able to see most clearly and be most blessed. There's a mode of encouragement to us. That we who come to see Jesus, even though we don't see him physically, but we see him through the, the, the mind, through the spirit, through the heart, we who recognize and acknowledge Jesus in life will get an easier, even deeper insight into who Jesus is and an even deeper blessing than the disciples who saw Jesus. Now, how could that work? I mean, that sounds encouraging, but it sounds a little bit odd, too. I just talked about how hard it is to believe in Jesus because we haven't seen him face to face. How is it we can have a deeper insight than those who physically touched him? You know, um, just a few nights ago, my wife and I uh, decided to watch a movie. And one of the great things about having a streaming service like Netflix is you run through movies you might not ever have heard of. But you think, oh, this might be a little interesting. And so we did. We watched a movie called Genius. And it was uh, just a couple of years old, but it's got some, some big-name actors. Colin Firth is in it. Uh, Nicole Kidman is in it. Uh, Jude Law is in it. 
And it was a well-acted, simple little story. Um, and yet what was really interesting about it was not the actors. They did a good job. It is the story of a genius, a man named um, Thomas Wolfe. Some of you will know him because he was a famous writer in the 20s and 30s. He wrote uh, Look Homeward, Angel, uh, and of, Ta- of Time in the River, and a few other pieces. Uh, he was critically acclaimed. He uh, wrote bestsellers. Those two books were great bestsellers. It made him a lot of money, even uh, at the time that the United States was in the Depression, and he was a Southern writer. But what it tells really is the interesting story of how those novels actually got to be printed, because Thomas Wolfe was an extraordinarily undisciplined man. He was a person who, uh, um, before he wrote the first novel, um, shacked up with a married woman for several years and then, then dumped her. And as she was providing inspiration, he was a person who put the dedication to his first book to her and then said, well, I've done enough with you. I'm off somewhere else now that I'm rich and famous. Then he also was a person who drank a lot, who uh, cavorted with prostitutes. A person also most interesting was when he was writing, was undisciplined as a writer. He was a person who kept writing. He felt like there was this, this creative genius in his soul. He had to keep writing all the time. And so he wrote and he wrote and he wrote and he wrote. And then he tried to submit this manuscript to publishers. and didn't want to touch it because it was like 1,100 pages. So he's got this gigantic doorstopper of undisciplined writing and publishers didn't want to touch it. But this manuscript got passed on to Scribner's, which is a publishing house uh, that was a well-known one uh, in the 20s. And so eventually it reaches the desk of an editor um, named Max Perkins. And Max Perkins looks at this and thinks, ah, this is a big mess. But you know what he notices? He says there's a, a germ of genius in this. It's undisciplined, but there's genius hidden here. And so he calls in Thomas Wolfe and says, look, I'm willing to publish this, but you need to let me edit a lot of this out. So he does. So he's got this long battle because Thomas Wolfe doesn't want to edit out a single word. Everything I wrote is perfect. But eventually he struggles and he fights with them and he cuts it down to a manageable size and through his editing and his suggestions, eventually after a long period, they publish this book, critical success as well as a publishing success. Same deal with the second book of Time in the River. Huge manuscript he wants to write forever. Max Perkins helps him cut it down to size and eventually uh, gets it published and then, although he fights with them all the time, in the second novel, when uh, Thomas Wolfe is finished, he writes a dedication to Max Perkins, giving him credit and saying, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have been able to do this. And why I tell you this story is because this is often the case in life. That when you see somebody who's got it all together and you're wowed by them, it's very easy not actually to get to know them. If he was, uh, Thomas Wolfe was a guy who just sort of popped in to the office and said, here's my manuscript, everything's perfect, great, sign off, publish it, great. But how did he get to know uh, this author? Max Perkins got to know and become friends with this man because he wrestled with him, walked with him, uh, worked his way through all the difficult things in this person's life, saw the ugly sides of it and said, I'm running always close to you and getting closer because I want to see your heart. I want to see you write what you really know. And all the extraneous stuff pushed away. They got to know each other in a deep, deep way. They did split a little bit later, but I looked it up. At the end, uh, spoiler alert, uh, Thomas Wolfe dies. Uh, but Thomas Wolfe, on his deathbed, he was dying of a form of tuberculosis. He was unconscious. He woke up. And the last thing that we know of that he wrote was a note to Max Perkins saying, the, the best day of my life was that day we spent when I got off the boat from England and we went upstairs to the top of a building and, and looked at the city skyline. It's interesting that although a lot of times he struggled with Max Perkins, he credited him for writing the book he did because Max got the time to know him well despite all the challenges. 
I'd like to suggest that that's one of the reasons why we actually have an insight into who Christ is that the people who saw him face to face might not have had. Think of that story of the 5,000 fed. Jesus takes just a few loaves and feeds 5,000 people with a great miracle. And then they all come to Jesus and say, give us more bread. And Jesus says, let me give you the bread of heaven. Let me give you the flesh, my flesh to eat and my blood to drink. And they all leave. They got full bellies. They saw Jesus do the wonder working, but they didn't want to stick around with Jesus and say, what, what do you really mean by that, Jesus? It's intriguing. Said, I'm going to go somewhere else to get my bread. How easy was it for people to see genius, Jesus in his glory and then just dismiss him because they figure they got him all sized up. The disciples walked with him and they walked with him when he was walking on the road to the cross. And they got to see him in a deeper, deeper way. But we also have to struggle to see Jesus. And we get to know him in a deeper way because we see Jesus through the ministry of the church. You notice that interesting part in the upper room where Jesus doesn't just say, hey, here I am, I'm risen. He says, after he's shown them who he is, he says he breathes his spirit, receive the Holy Spirit, he says. Then he says something even more interesting. He says, I give you the authority to forgive sins. Weird, right? What Jesus is doing there is he's saying, you the church will act as my body on earth. People saw me and knew me because they saw my historical body up to this point. You, the flesh and blood disciples, are meant to be my body on earth. And you are to represent me. And he gives them authority that belongs to Jesus alone. We are to come to the church and to see Jesus, but just like that story about a Thomas Wolf, it can be hard, right? We can find that walking with the church is a challenge because maybe you come on a Sunday and, you know, Father Stephen's sermon's a little off and it doesn't really hit you in a way. Or maybe you don't connect with the music. Or maybe somebody grumbles too much about your kid because they're squirming. Or maybe somebody corners you at coffee hour and tells you a long tirade about what Doug Ford is up to, right? So you could come to church and sometimes it could be pretty hard to see what Jesus is, right? Because you see the, some of the negatives there. But I'd like to suggest to you that, in fact, walking with the church being in the church week after week and contributing and being part of the church can in fact give you a deep insight you wouldn't see otherwise because you see how Jesus seems to hide himself in unlikely places and unlikely people. You know, just yesterday we had our Bud Club program, uh, which is a great program, and, and I don't take much credit for it because uh, Carmen leads it. We have volunteers. There's many of you sitting here today who are part of it. But uh, Eve, many of you will know, who I haven't seen in quite a while, and she's been through a lot of challenges because she had to move her home. But it was just so wonderful to sit there and I just say, hi, Eve, and just sort of see like a beam, right? This is a person of special needs and is not as able to communicate, but she's writing something and sort of shows me the scribble that she's done. And you're overwhelmed sometimes. You sort of think Jesus has been hiding in the smile of this special needs child. And I I gain an insight into who Jesus is to say Jesus chooses little children to show himself. Like Jesus says, bring the children to me, and we think, oh, that's cute. In fact, Jesus is saying something more. He's saying, learn from these little children. You're going to learn something about me. Or think about the ways that people, uh, oftentimes when you've had the, the chance to, to, to be with Christians who have been rescued from really difficult time of life, you, know, you, you, you talk to them who maybe struggle with alcoholism or struggled with different things, you realize, wow, this person doesn't have a lot of sort of a great education. They don't know how to speak in articulate terms. But the, the, the grace that flows out of them, and you think, wow, Jesus came to this person who had so many challenges. And you learn something about Jesus' love for you. One of the great opportunities we have and comforts to us is to say like what Thomas learned, which is he comes to the church 
what existed in the church was those disciples. And he comes and he learns to see Jesus by coming to the presence of where those disciples were. You see Jesus through sticking with the church through difficult times and in fact can come to see Jesus in a deeper way even that more than those who are fed by that miraculous bunch of bread that Jesus made. It may be hard, but like Thomas does, you stick with it and find that when you do and you bring both your doubts and your fears and your joys to the church, Jesus shows himself to you. Through the words we say, through the friendships you get, through the sacrament, he wants to reveal himself to you in deep, deep ways. But that leads me to the last point and why there's a real challenge in this gospel. If it's really true that Jesus says the church is supposed to represent him, if it's really true that his spirit works in us, if it's really true that he gives us a great authority as a church, that puts a pretty heavy responsibility on you and me. Because it puts a heavy responsibility on us because it means that the people who walk through that door need to be able to see Jesus when they come on a Sunday morning. And that means each of us have a responsibility to make sure that happens. Now, yes, it's Jesus' spirit. It's not, wow, each of us are so fantastic, people can't deny Jesus. What it is, is our willingness to allow Jesus' spirit to overcome the things that might be barriers to others. You know, I remember when I was in Vancouver several years ago, I was on a Sabbath leaf. It was a great time. I could go and worship. I worshiped in another church. And the church had a really great preacher in it. And anyway, the long and short of it was, they had a reduced children's program during that time. So you'd go to church, and so your children would come with you, and they'd be pretty squirmy, right? And it would be full. And one day we went there, the church was really full, and there was a little sign in one of the corner parts of the balcony that sort of said, uh, uh, for parents with children. But it was all filled with people who, uh, maybe they had kids, but they didn't bring them with them. And I still remember this. It was not a big thing, but a woman turns to, to us and says, um, you know that there is a children's ministry downstairs, right? And I, the tone of her voice made me think, yeah, you, you want me to get rid of my little squirmy kids. And I, I just kept thinking about that and said, like, that didn't drive me away. I'd been ordained. I was pretty stuck with Jesus. But I do wonder what it would have been like if that was the first time I'd ever been to church. You know, on a hot summer morning, I decided to get my kids, to comb their hair, to do all that stuff, to drag them out, and all the berries I went through. And then I sat down and somebody there said, eh, I'd rather you weren't here. I don't know if I ever would have come back. And yes, I don't think Jesus will condemn this woman to eternal torment, but it does mean to say he's going to ask her about it when he gets to that heavenly throne. Did you push somebody away by being grouchy? Think about the way that we treat strangers, people who sing off key, people who do corner us and talk about Doug Ford. Think about the ways that we treat the people who walk through our doors, like do we show them in what way we can who Jesus really is? And yes, I have my responsibility, musicians do, people who lead, but I can tell you that why people stick with the church is far more than what they do up front. I mean, anybody can listen to good sermons on the internet, they can listen to good music, they can get a show wherever they want to go. What they can't get is face-to-face community with human flesh and blood people who have flaws but admit that Jesus can come and work through those flaws to show them what Jesus is like. That's rare. And there's so few places where real community really exists. There's the opportunity here to show that to folks. It doesn't just stop at the doors of our church. You go out there on Monday to Saturday, you live lives. You go shopping, you go to work, you visit your grandchildren. How do people think of Jesus as a result of you being with them? I don't mean give them the spiel every time you talk to a cashier at the grocery store, but when she's a little slow, makes a mistake, how do you treat her? When your employee messes up or is a little bit late because they're stressed out because of family things, how do you treat them? 
How do you accept criticism when your employer tells you something wrong? Do you do it in such a way that Jesus shines through you? You've got a real responsibility and the privilege of showing this world who Jesus is. Don't take it lightly. Jesus knows we'll mess it up. Thomas messed it up and he was loved and forgiven. But what Jesus wants most of all is not that we're always on the, on the road doing perfect. We can fall on one side or the other in a ditch on the road to perfection. What he matters, what he cares about most is that we're at least headed in the right direction. So start heading in the right direction. Invoke the name of Christ. Invoke Jesus' spirit to help you when you're weak. But stay on the right road so that you might show the world who Jesus really is. And man, that's a powerful thing when a world who needs to be loved finds the love of Christ through you. It's the greatest thing you can do in another person's life.